You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner Claire O'Brien, and we are here with Dr. Sabrina Sani for episode two. This is October. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and unless you live under a rock in America, you're seeing pink everywhere, which is a whole nother discussion. But thank you so much for coming back again. We're going to talk more today about really breast cancer specific questions that everybody had and from the last episode. And then I put up a question box on Instagram. So gosh, thank you so much for taking another day out of your life to be here and do this. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Okay. All right. So we talked a little bit last time about hormone therapy, hormone replacement, and kind of menopause. What are we looking at in terms of labs and treatment? But we really didn't dive in as much because we said we're going to do a second episode to the women's health initiative studies <laughs> yeah. that were done and and just kind of where the stigma of hormone replacement therapy came from and what that means and what that looks like. Okay, so can you just give like an overview? Can you just give us an overview of why there's a, a stigma and a concern and safety concerns for a lot of women? Yeah. So you bring up a really good point about the women's health initiative. So that was sort of the biggest, largest randomized control trial that sort of was developed in, I think, in the late 90s that looked at women that were on hormone therapy for primary prevention. That's the key. It did not look at symptom control. It did not look at improvements in quality of life. It looked at truly primary prevention for cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, um, all-cause mortality. And unfortunately, the study was abruptly stopped in, I think, 2001 or 2002 due to concerns of increased risk for breast cancer and increased risk for stroke and blood clot. Um, they the, uh, like the principal investigator of the WHI, I think, put out like this huge press conference that day. Everybody stopped taking their hormones. And basically for the last several decades, women have basically gone without anything for menopause. So I think it sort of halted this this discussion on menopause. And I think now we here we are, you know, 20 plus years out from the WHI with more long-term data that actually this pretty safe and effective in terms of management of, of menopausal symptoms. We'll go into the nitty gritties about risks for cardiovascular disease, stroke, blood clot, and and whatnot. But I think a large part of what we need to remember when we look at the WHIs, that was using formulations of hormone therapy that we don't really use in practice that much anymore. I mean, granted, mm. they were they looked at women on placebo, looked at conjugated equine estrogen, which is a synthetic uh, estrogen called Premarin, which people may be familiar with, and then Prempro, which is a combination of that Premarin with medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is a synthetic progesterone. Truthfully, medroxyprogesterone acetate is really not used much clinically at all anymore. I think there are, I think you could argue that there's patients that would benefit from Premarin therapy, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But again, combinations that really aren't used much. So again, the population of women is a little bit different than what we would initially start somebody on today. So there's lots of like flaws in that study that I don't think we can truly generalize to say that it's unsafe and we should avoid it. So, and just a little bit about your background, which 
we touched on in the first episode, but you have done a full a fellowship in basically breast, which is exactly what we're talking about today. So I feel like I just want to put that out there for anybody who's listening. Like yeah. that's where your opinions are coming from. <laughs> but because I, I there are a lot of just general yes. breast questions that people have that are that are really good. So I kind of wanted to just go through a few of those if that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll just start with, there were several questions about imaging and dense breasts and dense breast tissues. So I think this is a really good question. And and there are a couple of questions about implants too. So number one, if I'm remembering correctly, okay, Mm -hmm. so we used to have the guidelines set at age 40, women would start getting mammograms, which I'm rapidly approaching. But then it kind of changed to age 50 sort of. And there's like a lot of debate on that, which is tricky, but we can talk about that too. But what we, I feel like as lay people, lay women don't really know much about is the different modalities of imaging. So we all have heard of mammograms, but then there's MRI, there's ultrasound, there's 3D ultrasound. What, what are your tips and recommendations for people wanting to get the right imaging? And, you know, when do you ask for more kind of how, how does that work? So good question. Kind of a loaded question because there's a lot of different factors. So first I of all, know. I'll go back and say that the USPSTF, uh, which is the United States Preventative Services Task Force, actually just came back and said we should start mammograms at 40. They used to say 50, but just recently, like in walked the last couple of months, went back to 40, which is great. They walked it back as they should because we're seeing higher incidences of cancer between the 40 to 49 age range. Um, so I think we were missing a lot of women in that time period of pe- patients were following that guideline. Now, there's a lot of definite, a lot of different breast imaging modalities. I mean, a mammogram is going to be your gold standard. And right now, I think the 3D mammogram or mammogram with tomosynthesis is pretty much the gold standard across the board. I don't think many places are doing a 2D image, but there might be. If you have dense breast tissue, you should 100% be getting at least a 3D mammogram once a year. Mm-hmm. To answer your question about some of the other imaging modalities, it sort of plays into density a little bit. So the best way I can sort of describe density is when women get a mammogram, they basically fall into one of four categories of breast density. And if you think about it on a spectrum, um, you have fatty breast tissue on one end of the spectrum, all the way to extremely dense on the other end of the spectrum. So going back from extremely dense, you have something called heterogeneously dense, and then something called fibroglandular tissue. And all that basically is looking at what is what is the proportion of breast tissue to actual fat in the breast, right? So women that have more fattier breast tissue probably sway more towards that fatty fibroglandular side. Women with denser or more breast tissue in general may fall more towards the heterogeneous or extremely dense side. Now, honestly, like 50% of women probably have dense tissue. I mean, it's incredibly common and women that are in their 40s and early 50s certainly are going to have denser tissue just by virtue of having regular menstrual cycles and normal hormonal fluctuations. But We know that women with dense tissue have a slightly increased risk for breast cancer. And that's in part because when we look at a mammographic image, fattier breast tissue looks black and dense tissue looks white. Well, cancers also look white. So it sort of limits the sensitivity of your mammogram when you have denser tissue. So a mammogram, again, is not perfect in that setting. So to answer your question about other modalities, there are... They are are dependent on where you live and the institution you may go to, but basically ultrasounds can be used as a supplemental screening tool. 
Um, where I am in North Florida, we use things like molecular breast imaging, which is sort of a newer imaging modality. And then there's certainly a breast MRI. Women who come in for a risk assessment. Sorry, I know I'm like going off on no. a tangent here. Well, but, I thought, I thought um, of a question, but I'll, I'll ask it at the end so I don't assessment. ruin your train of thought. Yeah. <laughs> so, no. Sorry. No. Um, this is like what I do. I mean, so I apologize. Right. No, it's what you do all day. That's um, why you're here. Lifetime risk for developing breast cancer. That's great. Calculated to be greater than 20%. I recommend a breast MRI right away. Women who fall less than 20%, but still have dense tissue. I personally recommend an MBI, but that's just because that's what my institution offers. But if you go somewhere else and they offer you like an ultrasound, then certainly I would, I would go with that. Okay. My question that came into my brain because I feel like I've seen this more recently in kind of the natural world is, is it thermography? Is that the shenanigan? I know you're, she's shaking her head. Okay. It is. First <laughs> of all, what, why I've, I've seen it kind of posed as like, Oh, avoid the radiation, which all right, fine. Okay. There, there might be so uh, very minimal with a mammogram, but there's no radiation with ultrasound or an MRI. So you're, that takes two out of three off the table. Perfect. What in the hell is thermography and why is everybody pushing that? Like what is going on with that? Thermography is our completely unreliable forms of breast cancer screening. I mean, really what they're looking for are areas that have heightened blood flow to a certain area. So they're going to not exactly catch all breast cancers and then they're going to catch a lot of things that are probably Random not breast crap. cancer. I I think that, yeah, crap for literal terms. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think there's this concern for expo- you know, prolonged radiation. I think it's sort of like the new hot imaging modality that people want to like get on, get on board with. And honestly, unfortunately, it's just, it's marketed as a very like appealing alternative and people like what's new and seems innovative, but like we can't deny the fact that a mammogram has shown reductions in mortality mm. of breast cancer for decades, which is why it's will forever be the gold standard. So I personally say no thermography under any circumstances. And if a patient comes to me with a thermogram, I'm probably going to recommend repeating the breast imaging anyway. Oh God, bless it. And it, it's just, again, another like cash-based <laughs> thing that I'm sure insurance doesn't cover because yep. it's, there's no data to right. support that it works and yada, yada. Okay. Well, right. moving on, please don't do that. All right. Two kind <laughs> of related questions. A couple people asked, and th- this is super interesting about fertility treatment, but then also kind of feel like birth control ties into that. Cause we, we talked a little bit about, a lot last time about actual hormone replacement, but uh, is there data with birth control, long-term use of birth control, and or fertility treatments? I think that's a really interesting question. So at this point, we have no data to support the use of fertility medications and breast cancer risk. So the answer okay. on that is no. Great. I think the birth control, the latest study that came out probably shows about an extra one case per 7,690 women. So it's okay. there and it's there if you use it greater than one year. Once you discontinue it, your risk goes back down to what it was at baseline. So oh. truthfully, truthfully, I think it's like a risks benefit conversation, right? Like a one in 7,690 versus contraception, painful periods, you know, whatever you may be using it for. I think sort right. of the benefits outweigh the risks. And I always remind women, especially women that even have the BRCA gene mutation that have an elevated risk for breast cancer that may not be 
you know, ready to have a mastectomy or even, you know, need it for contraception, right? I actually encourage the use of it because it protects against ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, and colon cancer. So, you know, especially in the setting of BRCA, like we would definitely want to reduce the risk of ovarian malignancy as much as possible. So birth control does. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. Okay. There we go. I mean, if I, not that I would wish any on of this on anyone, but I'm like, God, if I had to pick a cancer, I would pick breast over ovarian every damn day. I mean, what an absolute, uh, it's all a nightmare, but gosh, ovarian, there's no screening. I mean, the the treatment outcomes, it's just, it's, it's awful. So, okay. That's helpful to know. And I think, I think this kind of leads into a good, a good question too. Someone asked about the risk of dementia in dementia versus breast cancer risk with hormone replacement therapy. And we talked, we touched a little bit on this last time about the risk of not replacing the hormones and all the other things that come with that. Like the cardiovascular risk, I think is, is huge in terms of what we're not really acknowledging. So can you kind of, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the North American Menopause Society, or I guess now termed the Menopause Society, because I guess they they changed the name on me, but they the guideline for prescribing hormone therapy is basically within 10 years of the onset of menopause. So within 10 years of your last period or under, under the age of 60, generally the benefits will outweigh the risks. Women that go on it early and stay on it truthfully and at baseline don't have cardiovascular risk factors, don't have risk factors for things like Alzheimer's dementia, will honestly probably do very, very well and probably continue to keep a very low risk of developing that because estrogen to some degree can be cardioprotective. And the data on Alzheimer's and breast, or I'm sorry, Alzheimer's and hormone therapy is honestly kind of controversial now, but I actually think that if it's prescribed early, it can actually prevent the onset of dementia. But we have to remember that there's a lot of other factors that can contribute to dementia risk in general, whether it's a genetic predisposition, you know, things like that. But I certainly think that if prescribed early, women can stay on it and assess the need of of it kind of annually thereafter. There's really no timeline to cut off somebody's hormone therapy. Okay, that's interesting because I think we all have this certain age group in our minds that you're too young or you're too old or whatever. And and like you're saying, there's really no There's no like timeline. I mean, like 60 to 65 is generally when I feel like most physicians will probably start talking about whether or not we need to wean this off. But remember, it can help protect against osteoporosis, can keep your heart healthy, can, you know, a big thing in the Women's Health Initiative that showed breast cancer risk is yes, women that were on the combined hormone therapy. So estrogen plus progesterone had increases of breast cancer used for greater than five years. Um, the absolute risk of that is an extra one case per 1,000 annually. But women that were on estrogen by itself actually had lower risks of breast cancer. So it's probably that progesterone that's slightly, that was slightly more kind of stimulatory to the breast tissue. And so if, women has a, if a woman has a hysterectomy and she's been on estrogen, like we're getting, doing her supplemental screening and we're detecting her risk and we calculated her risk, I'm not necessarily like rushing to pull her off of it. And what was, you explained this last time, but I feel like it's important enough to say it again, is the the relative versus absolute risk, I believe, of, yep. so the, the reason this whole study was pulled is because kind of the headline was, oh, this hormone therapy increases the risk of breast cancer on women by 26%. Right. But then. And 
But then when you put that in absolute terms, it goes from a risk of like 2.4% to like 2.9%, right? So it's not like a zero to 26%. And similarly with cardiovascular risk. And when I say cardiovascular, I really mean like an increased risk of stroke and blood clot, Mm -hmm. um, which you'll get with a birth control pill. But again, I think this is probably an important time to like talk about routes of administration because those risks really vary on how you administer hormone therapy. Mm -hmm. So So, would would like hormonal IUDs fall into that same category at all or not? They really shouldn't be systemically absorbed. Although, I mean, we know there's some because it's there's some systemic absorption. Yes. I would say that there's very little, but there is considered some systemic absorption. Now, the yeah. risk of stro- for stroke and blood clot with like the Mirena IUD, I think is very low for sure, but it's still, you're still getting a little bit of progesterone. And if you have like an elevated risk for thrombotic events, maybe try an alternative. I want to tell you guys about my favorite supplement company, Thorn. Our family personally uses several of their products. So I use their collagen in the morning, and then I use a few things that were recommended by my headache doctors. The reason we use Thorn is they are so high quality, highly tested. They don't have fillers like so many other supplement companies do. They have partnerships with hospitals and organizations all over the country, like Mayo Clinic, Medical University of South Carolina, the UFC, huge athletic organizations. So if you are looking for high quality supplements, I always recommend Thorn. You can get 15% off any Thorn products by going to Thorn, that's Thorn with an E, thorn.com slash U slash Dabbleco. Create an account and you'll get 15% off and free shipping every time. I'll put that link in the show notes. Another question that I... I think there are a lot of things we could ask this for, but this is specifically for breast cancer. And somebody asked, it seems like there are younger in younger cases, or we're seeing more younger women with breast cancer. Do you feel like the actual numbers support that? Or is that we're better at screening? We're better at recognition. We are more aware of what's going on as women, or or do you really do, is that accurate to say that we're seeing a younger population with breast cancer? Where I would say twofold. I think you're right. I think we're capturing the women that are actually getting their mammograms now that the guidelines shifted back to forty. Mm-hmm. I also think I'm certainly seeing a, a larger percentage of women who are in their twenties and in their thirties being diagnosed being by being diagnosed. And there was an article, I think, in JAMA or that came out a couple months ago that sort of talked about like a significant increase in both of those age groups. And why, you know, I don't really, I don't really have the answer to why. I think they're yeah. sort of thinking maybe more environmental toxins and things we might be exposed to that we don't even really realize or recognize. Right. Um, but breast cancer risk in general is so multifactorial. I mean, like, if you broke it down, like 7% of all breast cancers are related to a true genetic mutation. So things like the BRCA1 and 2 gene are like a true genetic defect. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of on the forefront of genetics research are these, it's actually very cool, these things called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, mm. which are basically little slices in our DNA that individually don't matter, but collectively when you have many of them can actually influence cancer risk. Um, and we've identified about over 200 that can influence breast Yikes. cancer risk. And we've estimated that like maybe 18% of all breast cancers could be attributed to like what we call a high SNP count in our DNA. 
Okay, so do you think we'll test for that later? Like, yes. is that something yes. that's coming down the line that we'll be yes, able to test? Because right now we just have BRCA one and two testing. Yes, we have BRCA one and two testing. We've also and identified some other, like seven. Yeah, what is it like? Other P- genes as P ten, Cowden. What are the? Uh, there's like a, yep, some other P10, random ones. P ten, PALB two, check two. I mean, there's like seventy five different genes that we've now identified that can increase your risk for breast cancer, whether it's highly penetrant, moderately, or low. Uh But the SNP count is called a polygenic risk score. And so at my institution, we're actually doing a large study taking high-risk women, checking their SNP count, using it against a calculated risk, and basically getting a very individualized risk for breast cancer. And truthfully, I think the SNP count is going to have huge implications for like chronic disease risk, for fertility, for like so many other things that we aren't right. even utilizing it for. So I think certainly, and I hope that in the next like five to 10 years, we're using that pretty routinely. That is really, that is cool. And let's talk, let's yeah. talk about BRCA a little bit because um, yeah. I don't think we talked about that at all last time. And I, I think it's, I, I think there are, are plenty of people where it's really obvious that like, okay, you know, everybody in our family had breast cancer, we need to be tested. You know, what's really interesting to me is when people don't want to test like I that I don't even really know how to talk about that because I certainly it's not my medical history it's not my family it's not my place to tell sure. you what to to do or, or or not do but it's fascinating to me okay I want to talk about two things one why why yeah. would someone not want to do that but who when does your like your little radar go up and say even if they don't specifically meet criteria, because there's really specific criteria for testing, meaning really what insurance is going to cover. But right. when are you like, Meh, even if they don't cover it, let's probably, maybe we should think about this. Maybe we should dig in a little more. Do you send a genetic counseling? Like, how do you handle yeah. that? So really good questions. I certainly have seen patients that have a super compelling family history that when I talk to them about genetic testing or counseling, they're like, not really interested. And some of it, in, in part, you know, like I think it provokes more anxiety, maybe knowing that information and sort of feeling, well, okay, the quote unquote inevitable is coming. But I think it's people's Oof. personal interpretation. The other yeah. part is like there are implications for life insurance too, right? Which people don't want to. Oh my gosh. Um, I even never even thought about deal that. Deal with. So I actually recommend, and it's recommended that you should always test the affected individual for the gene first. And if they're negative, then you can sort of like go down the family tree and sort of deduce. So it's always like best to to check the affected family member if they're willing or alive and able to do so. So this is just me me personally. I mean, I I get it. Getting the result of that test has got to be no less than nerve wracking. I mean, especially if you're thinking this is where it's going to be leaning to because there's so many implications, right? And especially if you're younger and you, maybe you haven't, oh yeah. my gosh, had kids yet or you're, I mean, there's just a million implications, but I, I can't, I'm having a really hard time understanding why someone would not, if, if, if we really think that that's in your family, like, why would you not want to know that? Because there's so much prevention that can be done. I mean, you're screened differently. Of course you can have preventative surgery. I mean, there's so much, it's not just, it's not the inevitable necessarily. If we know what you're likely to have, then we can help protect you. So I, that's just such a hard conversation. I don't know if you ever have to have that with patients. I'm sure you do. 
It is. It's not a one, one visit conversation, right? So sometimes I have this conversation every six months if I see them and we're screening them, right? Oftentimes, even if they don't have the genetic mutation, but they have this super compelling family history, I'm following them every six months anyway, just with the mammogram and an MR and I'm sort of reiterating it, right? And you sort of have to meet people where they are, right? Like maybe their first visit with me when they come in and learn, you know, they're they were encouraged by a friend or a family member to like go get checked out. It can be really nerve wracking to like have a mammogram or have an MRI when you have a really strong family history, because even if something pops up and it's completely benign, which more often than not it is, it can be super anxiety provoking to just have that experience of getting a biopsy, waiting for the results. Like, what does it mean? Right. And unfortunately myself and my radiologist can't really tell you definitively without tissue what it is. I mean, we can have suspicions, but so it can be a lot on people. It really okay. can. And so this is my, I know you've got to go. We're, we're just like, I have oh, 20 right. minutes today. Like, bless <laughs> we'll it. do no, part three. Thank it's you. Fine. Yeah. We're, we'll just every month. Come on just talk <laughs> about our boobs. So the last question truly, okay. If, if someone, let's say someone's listening, they're like 32 years old. I think what's really interesting about what you do specifically. So do women have to wait until there's a problem? Do you have to wait until you're old enough for imaging? I mean, this is kind of rhetorical for me, but I'd love for people to hear it from you of just, there are physicians out there that exist, like that do exactly what you do, that you don't have to wait until there's a problem and you can see someone and get on this preventative schedule and you can help them get things improved through approved through insurance before a regular, like a primary care would and all, and all that. So can you kind of tell people how, how to find someone that that does what you do and and what when and what they might do to come see someone like you. Yeah, so totally. If you are like especially if you're under the age of 40 and you're, you know, of the belief that you're not going to be able to get a breast imaging because, you know, you don't meet their criteria. If you have a problem, if you have a concern whether it's lumps, bumps, skin changes, nipple discharge, pain or tenderness, please do not ignore it. Right? Like I said kind of earlier, we are seeing higher rates of breast cancer in younger populations. So truly, I think gone are the days where we're saying things like, oh, you're too young. Like, oh, that wouldn't happen in somebody 25. No, I think it, I think it very could. And I think we have to tailor that imaging a little bit differently to women that are younger, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They may not get a mammogram. They may start with an ultrasound. They may start with an MRI. They may start with something else. So I would say for women that have a problem, I mean, start with your local physician, whether it's your primary care, your GYN. And if you're not sort of getting what you're needing, honestly, find a local breast center. Um, If you live in a city where there is like academic centers, I mean, most university hospitals will have some sort of dedicated breast imaging, breast imaging center and somebody there that you can see for this breast problem. And you can get an exam and get imaging and go through the motions of trying to figure out what's next. And a lot of times you can while you're in, you can get a risk assessment, right? So your your risk can be based off your family history, reproductive factors, your breast density, so many things. And so once we know what your individual risk is, we can sort of tailor long-term what kind of imaging you should have going forward. Man, so important. Guys, uh, yeah, it's October. And I know, I mean, you see pink everywhere, but it, it's just, there's even a whole conversation about that, that it almost... Um, really detracts from how severe and significant all of this is for, for women. I mean, we're dying. We've got bumper stickers about save the tatas and that enrages me to a point that I like cannot even appropriately express. I mean, right. Who cares about the tatas? Like save your, your 
life. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on again to talk about this. this is so important. And where can people find you if they're looking for you? Um, I am on Instagram at um, SKS underscore MD. But thank you for having me. This was awesome. I'm sorry that I went off on a tangent there. No, but seriously, we love a I'm tangent. So about, That's so why you're here. <laughs> no, we love a tangent. Okay, guys. Well, thank you so much. If you like this episode, please rate it, share it, particularly this month. It's so important. It could truly save someone's life. And keep listening. Leave us a review. And I'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.